You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? Well, Chad, I'll tell you what. I just was reminded on Twitter recently, I believe by our dude Aaron Bronstetter, that mm-hmm. basically from now through December, we're looking at UFC fight cards every single weekend. Yeah. Then I started to look around at kind of what we've been seeing from about the quality of some of these fight cards, especially some of the people being asked to fight repeatedly. I went over to the UFC website and I was trying to look at the fight card for this upcoming weekend. They, you know, they show the headliners, Alistair Overeem, you know, and uh, now, now I've even forgotten. Augusto Sakai. Augusto Sakai. Thank you. And it says like, click fight card. And so I click the fight card and every single time I try it, it just redirects you back to last weekend's fight card, which makes yeah, you wonder. That's, that's because Overeem versus Sakai, well, as of this morning, was the only bout that was listed as official on the card. I see now that they have added the full card over here at least on the Wikipedia page. But this is a new a new update from when I looked at it this morning. Uh, you got Ovin St. Prue and Alonzo Menafield going to do okay. it in the co-main event. Ciara Eubanks and Carol Rosa, uh, Michael Piera and, or I'm sorry, Michelle Piera and Zilim Adamov and Tiago Moises and Jalen Turner is your main card, of course. Wait, so the Ovin St. Prue, Alonzo Menafield one, that was the one that was supposed to happen like two weeks ago, right? And it was called yes. off because Ovin St. Prue tested positive for COVID. Yes. So the protocol is you test positive for COVID and we tell you just like lay low for a couple of weeks and then come on back. Once you get cleared, I believe, and then you've waited however long it is that the the guidelines are that you need to come back with a negative. There it was. There was some uh, there was some weird stuff surrounding that Ovin St. Prue positive test, right? Like maybe this was his second positive test. That so it, like when I looked, it was it, it seemed like it was unknown if this was his second go round uh, with COVID nineteen or if like maybe it was a a pulsing picogram situation okay, uh, or pulsing something like that. Pulsing of COVID-19. Well, well, and also, well, then you had Ion Kudalaba, who he uh, tested positive earlier this month, right, and had to be pulled from that fight. Uh, then we rebook it yet again, trying to get this rematch on the books, and then it was called off hours before fight time because of another positive COVID test. Yeah, uh, well, it seems like we're averaging about one fight per event pulled from the lineup at the last minute. It always seems like they, it happens right on uh, either the day before the fight or on fight day, uh, almost like we're waiting till the last minute to see if we can get uh, negative tests out of these people. But but who knows, man? I don't exactly know when the testing is done, when the results come in, things like that. It just seems like in this pandemic era of MMA, we we need to be accustomed to cards subject to change right up till the till bell time. Interesting times. I would say that we're living. And despite in. despite the fact you only had what was it uh, four fights on the main card here at the the Saturday night fight card with uh, Anthony Smith and Alexander Rakic in the in the main event, you still you went four straight decisions. Uh, and I guess once you get to that final fight, I think you're probably real happy you only got a three rounder 
there in the main event instead of the full 25. Especially when you look at how that particular three-rounder played out. This was not one where uh, you were wishing for two more rounds. Didn't seem like you were going to, like Anthony Smith was going to make a comeback in that final 10 minutes. I felt like we learned all we needed to know in that 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I went from being like, wait a minute, why is this one only three rounds to being like, thank God this one's only three rounds (laughs) in a span of about five minutes. Yeah. Have you gone out and grabbed your copy of The Blaze, listener? It's my latest novel. It's a mystery and thriller. All the little co-maniacs seem to like it. You should go get it today wherever you went on whatever format you like to do your reading. Remember, if you have read it or you do read it and you do enjoy it, please go leave me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book. So do me a favor. Buy, read, rate, review, The Blaze, wherever's best for you. Ben, we got uh, we got exciting news this week. We got new music alert again this week. Whoa. Two weeks in a row. This week, we're going to be featuring tunes from old school CME fan Kyle Kelly Yoner, who also happens to be a drummer of tremendous skill. He's got a solo project out this week. It's an EP called, I believe, Mirrors. It's instrumental tracks, mostly drums and synth, and it's pretty cool. Uh, if you like what you hear on the show, you can find out the rest of the EP. You can go check it out at his website, kyleky.com, or follow him on Instagram at kylekydrums. So there you go. We're going to be checking out a little bit of mirrors. Looking forward to that. And this week is is Kyle Kelly Honor who I should go to when I need some beats for my uh, yes. for my rap album. Um, he can probably provide you with some some drums, some drum okay. beats, and and he's doing all the instrumentation over here on the mirrors EP. So I assume you know he knows his way around some some different instruments. So maybe depends on what kind of sound you want. I will say. The songs we're going to play this week from Mirrors are going to give the CME a little bit of a different vibe than normal. So okay. I'm excited to roll those out. How is your a, uh, how's your rap album coming? It's you know it it's been up and down. Like I, I, it's hard finding free time, but it is like I think right now is the time when everybody's ready for a rap concept album about the invention of the internal combustion engine. So I think I think timing wise, I'm coming along just at the right time. It's all in the game, man. Yeah. I can see you over there with your notebooks, just mm-hmm. scribbling down words that rhyme with Ford. <laughs> Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, we all know what Anthony Smith was searching for by hurrying back to the cage just a few months removed from his highly publicized and brutal loss to Glover Tashira in May. But man, he did not find it. And in round number two, Ben, the CME must collectively face a very sobering question. Is the end near for ruthless Robbie Lawler? And in round number three, well, it seems like we've finally reached the point where Al Soroverim is just another dude. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Dwayne Fries. Does that look like that's how you say it? Fries? I have no idea. Dwayne Fries writes, When will the MMA community truly grapple with the fact that Dana White, maybe the most powerful person in the sport, supports openly and publicly the racist white supremacist president of the United States? 
I've been struggling with this question since 2016, and as a black queer fan of the sport, I've only felt more and more disconnected from it. It feels goofy to ask white dudes this question, but Fair as enough. experienced yeah, no kidding. But as experienced journalists who have touched on the labor issues surrounding the UFC, I wanted to request your input. Well, it is goofy to ask white dudes this question, but thank you for doing it all the same. Ben, we talked about this a little bit on Friday's show over on the Patreon. Uh, Dana White obviously making his second appearance at the Republican National Convention here uh, this past weekend. It was uh, 2016. The first time he did it, he comes around now in the in the effort to reelect President Donald Trump. And like one of the things we talked about over on the Power Hour regarding this appearance was that this speech at the 2020 convention was different in focus, in scope, in tenor a little bit, although he he still did his prerequisite bald man shout times yeah. up there on the mic. Gonna yell. Gonna yell no matter what. The first time Dana White went to the Republican National Convention, and frankly, for most of these four years that he has continued to support Donald Trump, uh, it has seemed like a marriage of convenience of sorts, or at least a a friendship and loyalty based on pragmatism. Essentially, like what the UFC received from Donald Trump a long time ago when he was a casino owner and the UFC was still just sort of like a struggling struggling fight organization and he invited them to come out to his casinos in Atlantic City and do events, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that, that's been the foundation of this relationship between Dana White and Donald Trump for much of these four years. But then he shows up at the 2020 convention, obviously de- delivering his speech uh, somewhat remotely. But he gave a speech that sounded a lot more like a complete – uh, approval or endorsement of much of the Trump policy agenda, if you can even say that such a thing exists, uh, got more into the scope of of the political world of of President Donald Trump talking about defunding the police, talking about uh, you know his response to the coronavirus pandemic, and the week before that he had been asked about the situation at a post fight. Uh, press conference where they said, hey, when you go to give a speech at the Republican National Convention, like what kind of input does the party have? Do they have to go over your speech? And Dana White was basically like, no, I just get to go out there and speak from the heart. So not only do we have like a wider ranging, more politically charged message here from the UFC president, but also one that he preemptively signed off on as being from the heart and his words alone. Yeah, so, took full ownership of it like in advance. So it leaves us not necessarily in a surprising place with Dana White, but in, in a somewhat different place just in terms of the realization or the confirmation that the UFC president appears to be on board with the larger Trump policy agenda, where in the past he has kind of said, I'm not political. I don't give a shit about that stuff. Basically, it just seemed like he wanted to, to support his buddy, a guy who had done stuff for him in the past. Um, this gives us a different view, and it's one that I agree is just like another step down the road of of things that that it, for a lot of people, myself included, can be difficult to swallow about the the current incarnation of Dana White and how that reflects on the UFC. Yeah, uh, you know, I I got an email last week uh, or like over the weekend uh, from a fellow MMA media member uh, who kind of was asking me about like my take on has the MMA fan base changed like. As the country itself, like at least this country, has gotten more polarized, has the MMA fan base leaned to the right of that polarization? Or is it just more noticeable now? 
And I was kind of thinking about it because it's like whenever you'll see like a, a social media post or something where somebody's like, oh, Dana White's going to speak at the, the convention. And you look at the comments and it's a bunch of people being like, hell yeah, Trump, MAGA brother, all these lib libtard cucks going to be so mad. He's triggering all the libs. I love it. Dana White's my guy. And it's like there's always been that that subset of MMA fans who seem to show up every weekend to watch a bunch of guys fight in the cage and yet identify first and foremost with the multimillionaire who is profiting wildly off of the thing and not the actual fighters who they see. And every time like there's a complaint from the fighters, they love to see Dana White get real tough guy with them and crack down on them and, and, and talk real tough about him. And that has always seemed like perplexing to me, but then it's, like when Dana White was asked basically like, do, or do you worry about how showing up at this convention and giving this speech in favor of Trump, but you might be splitting your audience. Like a lot of people being, will say kind of, as you said, and as uh, our, our question here is like, Hey, I don't feel good about supporting this stuff anymore, especially knowing that like the bulk of my money seems to be going to the ownership, including Dana White and not to the fighters themselves. Especially if you're trying to make the argument to some of these people like, hey, don't illegally stream these pay-per-views, my guys, because you're stealing money out of the fighters' pockets. At least the few of them who make a percentage of the pay-per-views, a lot of them might then turn around and tell themselves, well, if I'm stealing money out of this guy's pocket, maybe I feel better about it instantly. And he was his answer was essentially like, no, I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit what anybody thinks, you know, the typical Dana White, like tough guy stuff. But maybe it's easier to do that if you feel like a lot of your fans already lean that direction. And I don't, I mean, one of the things I wonder is of the new fans that MMA attracts, at least, you know, in the, the North American part of the fight fan world, is it more likely to attract that type of fan? Like if you are the type of person where, you know, you don't want to support businesses that you feel have or like support politics that are completely antithetical to not only like your political beliefs, but at this point, your moral and ethical code, are you then less likely to even get into this to begin with as a fan, which if that's the, if that's the way it's trending might be bad news for this particular podcast uh, by virtue of like we're, we're even engaging in this discussion at all. Like if you are like a hardcore Trump fan, right winger, uh, you're, you've probably long since turned this off because you're pissed off that we aren't sticking to sports. And yet, especially when you're watching all this unfold, like you're watching Dana White show up remotely to give this speech about what a great job Donald Trump did taking on the coronavirus pandemic just head on immediately instituted these measures, according to Dana White, did a fantastic job. Meanwhile, you have to record this remotely because it's not safe to gather in large groups. And you lose a fight per weekend off of your fight card due to at least one COVID positive test. So it's like, it's still raging, man. It's still going on. People are dying from it every single day. We're, we're going to hit 200,000 uh, deaths pretty soon here. There's no clear end in sight of this thing. And then, you know, you have a country, it just, like, when you look around at everything that's going on right now, does it, at least for me, it feels like, well, this is the worst point in American history that I can recall during my lifetime. Like, it seems like we are at a very, very low point. And to show up then and be like, everything is great. And this guy who has shown just the complete opposite of leadership during it, we have to give him four more years of it. Like that is where I can see a lot of people like even if you are a longtime MMA fan looking at it and being like, man, 
you are really pushing the cognitive dissonance for me where I'm trying to make a split between I enjoy watching this thing because of the fighters and I try to tune out the stuff I don't like. And it's right in your face now. Like it's really, it's, I can see how for somebody like it's really hard to just ignore it and move on with being a fan of this. Yeah. No, I can say uh, even as a goofy middle-aged white dude who lives in Montana, which is obviously a fairly conservative sport or conservative state, like I know I've said this on the Patreon properties. I don't know that I've said it here on the proper that I don't know that I will ever look at the UFC and Dana White the same way again, post pandemic, knock on wood, if we ever get back to a somewhat uh, quote unquote normal world. I feel like this, the coronavirus pandemic and Dana White's vocal support for the president has changed a lot of the ways that I interact with the sport, or at least made me think twice about it. Um, just this sort of unapologetic, unwavering insistence that they're going to forge ahead during the pandemic was kind of like a wake up moment for me where I was sort of like, oh, wow, they're, these people are like, they're about the money and nothing else, even in a situation like this. Like in normal times, maybe I could kind of you know, uh, at least understand why that would be the, the the approach that Dana White like runs this huge company. He, like he's beholden to a lot of different people. Uh, clearly, now that they are owned by WMEIMG, he has he has superiors that he needs to to answer to. They got to get that ESPN money. I guess it was shocking even to me to see them do that amid a pandemic. Just sort of like the only thing that matters is we is that we get that broadcast money from ESPN. I found that to be pretty shocking, and it still blows my mind to think about it even now. Uh, and same with Dana White's public support for the president. And like I said, this the, the tenor of this speech was just different than what we have seen before from him. And it was more, it was more of a of a uh, of him signing off on on a lot of the things that we have seen that that much of the country, the majority of the country, finds pretty reprehensible. So yeah. uh, I empathize with anyone who like now looks at the sport and uh, can't can't engage with it the same way that they did before. And I think for Dana White, a guy who runs a company that has a large army of diverse independent contractors that includes lots of people of color, it includes lots of immigrants, for him to look at that workforce and then to be like, oh, it's totally fine if I go support the president. Uh, seems like a weird disconnect to me and a very strange thing for him to do. And when he's asked those questions at the press conference, I feel like he doesn't even engage with those questions at a depth that might lead to that kind of introspection. To, yeah, the way no, he, he does The way he says, I don't give a shit what people think, it's almost like somebody asked him about his shoes. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, well, uh, what do you? Th what if people don't like your sneaks, Dana White? And he'd be like, oh, I don't give a shit what people think. The people who know me know me and the people that don't, their opinions don't matter to me. Like, the question is somewhat deeper than that. If you were going to go out there and support this president and support this policy agenda, which has been so disastrous for much of the country. Well, and also I think that the old stick to sports, stay in your lane kind of thinking seems more untenable than ever now. Just because of the way it has affected everybody's daily reality and the way you're, you know, we seem to be at a crisis point. In, in, in so many ways as a, like a, a culture and a society and everything. So it's like 
to be like, hey, man, I, we can all differ on political views, whatever. We just enjoy the same sport. It gets tougher when you're living through a time like that. And you're right for him to respond that way. Like, I don't give a shit. People know me. They don't know, like, I'm not a racist or I'm not whatever. And it's like, well, but you are telling them, like, even if they know you well enough personally to to, to believe that that is true about you. At this point, by continuing to, to so vocally support this president, what you are saying is that, like, racism is not a deal breaker for you. And that's the thing. I think a lot of people who responded initially, like, very, getting really upset when people say, oh, I, how dare you call me a racist just because I'm supporting a, the different presidential candidate than you are. But it's like, yeah, at this point, it's pretty clear like, what's going on there. And you were saying, like, if by still supporting him all these many years later, that that is not a big enough issue for you to get off the bus. Like you, you will not draw a line there. And so that is you telling us something about yourself. And to then turn around and be like, I don't care what people who know me know I'm really not like that. But you're showing us that you like that. You're showing us that that is not an important enough issue for you to break with somebody over. And you're right. Like you do wonder a lot how like, you know, a lot of people who fall into the demographics that Trump and, and his administration target how they feel like there are fighters in the UFC who fall into those demographics, how they feel seeing the boss stake out that position. Cause it's probably feels pretty personal to them. I can imagine that it would. The next question this week comes to us from Jake, the snake Allen. He writes, fellas, did we do Bjorn Rebney dirty? Bellator's numbers just came out, just came out and they are no bueno. I realize that not all decisions are likely cokers, but baby, what is you doing? Bjorn got a lot of flack for how he ran things, but it being 2020, let's use some hindsight here. Both used tournaments. However, Bjorn utilized fresh prospects in order to build brand-centric stars, the Chandler, Chandler, the Pitbulls, Curran, etc., while cokers' tourneys are much more one-off spectacles filled with old-timers, jaded journeymen, UFC watchouts, and spurned fighters looking to trade relative prominence in the number one org for more money and a lesser one. It also feels like their hands uh, are tipped within the tourney matchmaking, as in as in under Coker, you know why they matched X and Y, sort of manufacturing results without outright fixing. Bjorn's tourneys guaranteed fairly legitimate challengers. Bjorn built stars. Coker wastes them. Bjorn created a unique but still palatable MMA alternative. It made matchmaking easy. It made them less reliant on signings. I liked the sportsman aspect in that regard more than the flimsy UFC rankings. Did Winnebago Man truly have a fail son, or is he underappreciated or is he an undi- underappreciated anti-hero? Thoughts. So uh, an email from Bjorn Rebney's mom here. Okay. Well, uh, it's possible to, to that there's some middle ground there between the idea that like Bjorn Rebney sucks and Scott Coger came in and saved everything. Right. Like maybe Bjorn Rebney was the guy they needed to get it off the ground and to get Bellator up and running as something new. Because it had a, it's true. Jake the Snake Allen is not wrong about this. That it had a different feel early on when Bjorn Rebney was starting, and that was the big challenge, right? Was to like start a new fight promotion and then get our attention on it right away. And it had a totally different like target demographic at first, a totally different thing that it was doing. And yet, I do think you reach a point with that where like it was successful to a point for with, with what it was. But then you reach a point where it has to become something else, like in order to get any bigger than that. And I think that it was the right decision to go get somebody like Scott Coker, who has done that. Like he did that with Strike Force, taking it from basically a regional show to a major 
MMA organization that was seen as a competitor to the UFC. I mean, I still think like there's huge, huge problems, major roadblocks standing in your way between making that leap from like narrowing the gap between number one and number two in the MMA space. Just because the UFC is such a head start, it's still basically the name of the sport in the minds of a lot of people. Those are big, big things to get over. Plus, like the way the UFC approaches signing young fighters, what we see with the contender series and what we've seen before with the ultimate fighter, where all these fighters, they really want to get in the UFC. That's seen as a big status symbol to them. They see like being UFC champion as the thing that they dream about. So you get them locked in early on into these uh, kind of low paying contracts and it leaves fewer and fewer out people out there on the free agency market for Bellator to scoop up. And the Bellator has done pretty well with some homegrown talent stuff. I mean, guys, uh, like AJ McKee and stuff. I think you see like Bellator does have its eyes out for fighters that it can make as their own guys, not just going after and scooping up UFC fighters after they have kind of outlived their prime. But I, I mean, as far as like looking at where Bellator ranks compared to the UFC now and deciding whether it's Scott Coker or Bjorn Rebney was the right person to lead it. I think Bjorn Rebney was the right person early on and Scott Coker is the right person now. Um, but it doesn't mean that you don't still have a job of work in front of you trying to make Bellator into a, a serious competitor to the UFC. Most of the public scrutiny or the public uh, backlash against Bjorn Rebney was because in many cases, the word was he did not treat people very nicely, that he was kind of a jerk to people. I think I don't know that a ton of the criticism falls on that old Bellator tournament format, although I think that it probably had a ceiling. And I think we saw that ceiling reached. And I agree with you that by the time we we handed the keys over to Scott Coker it was probably the right time. I would also say that Jake the Snake Allen's point about the, the Bellator ratings is a good one. Like the Bellator ratings are not good. The ones that just came out that like between 200,000 and 400,000 people essentially watching these events, which is not great numbers. But I also don't necessarily know if you can throw that all at Scott Coker's feet. You know what I mean? Uh, it's definitely a different time in the sport. Uh, as we discussed on the Patreon last week, I think that the decision to start putting events on DAZN was was not a good one. I think that that maybe was all it took for people to feel like they didn't know where to find Bellator. Because even now, if Bellator has an event, it's always a question like, is this one on on Paramount or is it on DAZN? And so it, I think just that small confusion, that, that very – uh, like small hurdle to get over to even know where to watch the event is is meaningful for people. Like especially if you're just on sort of like a, uh, you know, watch Bellator when you stumble across it kind of schedule. If you don't, if you're not sure where it is, I think it's going to fall out of your mind pretty easily. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also like unfair to uh, compare an era before this ESPN deal with the UFC. Honestly, I feel like the UFC ESPN deal so solidified the UFC as the top organization and even more so than the Fox deal made the UFC programming so ubiquitous that I just like, frankly, I don't have a ton of time for another promotion right now. Like the UFC takes up all of my limited MMA entertainment time because there's a goddamn UFC every single week and you got to keep track of, of what's going on with that. Like, uh, if there are people, you know, people who are somewhat casually viewing the sport more casually than you and you and I are, I just don't think those people probably have a ton of time for Bellator right now or one FC or any other 
kind of like second tier organization. I think the UFC has has become even more dominant over the last several years. And so I think it not only is it harder to get eyeballs, but it's harder to make those stars. It's harder to replicate what Coker did in Strike Force. Like now Bellator has Vadim Nemkov as light heavyweight champion. And they have a person that perhaps they could turn into sort of like a a, a drawing card and a, a Bellator, in some ways Bellator produced star. But like, will they be able to do it? Is anybody even really paying attention enough to to make Nemkov that kind of a, a figure? Maybe like they kind of did it for Michael Chandler, but I think it's it's much more difficult to do it now in this era where the UFC is is just taking up all of the oxygen in the room right now. It's almost no time left over for Bellator. You're right. But uh, you do make a good point, though, that when we're talking about ratings, especially right now, it's difficult to use like one ratings number in for a Bellator event in August when they seem to be during like a transition period for what their broadcast future is going to look like and be like, this is proof that Bellator is floundering and it's not going to go anywhere. Because like we talked about on Friday, the big issue Bellator faces right now is where are the fights going to be shown and how do you make sure people just always know where to find your fights? Because if, when you're bouncing back and forth and it seems like, you know, you're going to bounce soon to CBS Sports and maybe Showtime and maybe CBS in the future, you need a you need to find a home that fits for you and stick with it for a while so that people can can have that in their minds where they don't have to think about, like, how do I watch this this Bellator? Do I need a special thing? Do I do I need to pay for a thing? What is it like you need there to like like the advantage that Bjorn Redney kind of had was like, OK, you're always on one thing and people know where to find it. Yeah. All right, we'll do one more here. Question from John Giles, who writes, Daniel Cormier, John or Joe Duffy, uh, Ray Borg, Lil Nog, and Triple C all retired during the pandemic, and Anderson Silva, Diego Sanchez, and Habib could all be gone before fans are back in arenas. Now, I know MMA retirements have a reputation worse than a used car salesman, but do you think the fact these guys didn't or won't get to hear the crowd cheer for them one last time will have an impact on them staying retired? Um, kind of an interesting I, question and like yeah, not necessarily I had not thought what of we, that. Would, we would consider, but you got to think that it's just a, a much different environment, not only for us watching at home, but like for the athletes themselves, especially like if you take a guy like Cormier, who may well have made his, his final octagon appearance against Stipe Miocic here. Uh, I wonder if that, I wonder if that would weigh on his mind that like the, the experience of the final fight just like wasn't the way that he imagined it or the way that it might've been if, if the arena had been packed with fans. Maybe part of the question depends on when will there be fans in arenas again? Because that doesn't feel like anything we're super close to right now. Right. <laughs> like it doesn't seem like if you like anybody's telling himself, well, if I would just hold on another like six months, maybe I'll I'll get to to feel that rush of the crowd again because it might be longer than that. And for some of these guys, I don't know. I mean. Like Triple C, that one's a tough retirement to believe to begin with. But Little Dog, it was tough to believe he made it as long as he did. Like he he's been at this forever, and so a lot of those retirements, I think, like they're not. It's not like the person's sitting there being like, "Well, maybe I'd like to do one more just so I could hear that crowd again." Because I don't think it's really a realistic option for a lot of those people. Sometimes, also the idea that uh, Anderson Silva, Diego Sanchez, and Khabib could all be gone before fans are back in arenas. I mean, I might agree with you all, except for Diego Sanchez, because he will never retire, ever. And we all know this. Uh, but I, it's hard for me to think about some of those people, be, like that being the thing that pushes them to make a different decision. Because I don't think anybody arrives at that decision lightly. 
you know, sometimes people will arrive at it like they're pissed off because they lost the last fight. And that's why I'll do it. But I think a lot of these people who, you know, like Daniel Cormier, who had like a plan, you know, Ray Borg had already like tweeted and deleted his stuff. You know, he's dealing with some other stuff that uh, obviously are other factors. But somebody like Anderson Silva, who's been at it forever, like I, when they do finally retire, I don't think that it's a minor decision that could be impacted by, but I never get to hear people chant my name one last time, you know, which reminds me before we move on to this, this other question from the Corgi King, he mentions Ricardo Lamas. I know we don't really have time to get into this whole thing. He asked, but I found it interesting because with the Ricardo Lamas fight, right? He, this, this past weekend had himself hell of a fight goes out there, uh, fight of the night effort wins the decision. And it was a tough fight for him. You know, you could tell that he was really, he was digging down deep in some of those moments. And then afterwards said that he came into this fight thinking it might be his last one and he didn't want to end on a loss. And so that really motivated him. Uh, and then uh, people, uh, like it mentions Michael Chiesa on the broadcast afterwards, but I saw a lot of people being like, I kind of hope that is the last one because that's a good one to go out on. And I was thinking the same thing when I watched it, but then also wondering like, is that the old conundrum? Like where you see a guy where you're like, okay, here's a good point. Here's a point that you could end on. You could feel really good about it. And, you know, you, you went out as good as you possibly could have. But then does that make it less likely that you actually will go out that way? Yeah. And for, for a lot of people coming back, you know, Daniel Cormier, Henry Zahudo, among them, I'm sure guys like Diego Sanchez and Habib determining whether or not they're going to stick around. I feel like the decision is far more financial than it is. Yeah. You know, anything else. And, and not that those things don't have a say because they obviously do. These people are humans and their experiences are going to shape their uh, their decision making and what they do and things like that. But at the same time, like Cormier is going to come back if you offer him a shitload of money, I think is the uh, is the moral of the story. It's probably the bottom line. And the same might be true of of Habib, of, of Cejudo. It, like he, he has already said, add another zero to the paycheck and he will think about coming back. So I think even more than like the arena experience of the final fight is probably the paycheck. And that's going to be the deciding factor for many of these people. Yeah. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. It comes out some Friday mornings to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on the weeks that we're not recording those podcasts. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Anthony Smith returned to the cage on Saturday night, just shy of four months removed from his previous fight against Glover Teixeira, one that was widely talked about in the media, widely talked about among fans just because uh, of the damage that Anthony Smith took en route to that fifth round TKO loss to Glover Teixeira. And as we discussed on Friday, it was really one of the fights that may not have been well served by the empty arena. 
in that you could hear everything that was happening. The uh, the damage accepted by Anthony Smith seemed more visceral, more kind of in your face because there wasn't any crowd noise to cover it up. You could hear Anthony Smith and Glover Deshira talking to each other as as the fight went on. You could see up close and personal Anthony Smith hand his teeth to the referee at one point. And we also talked a little bit about what a guy could be hoping for when he makes a quick turnaround like this to come back in the wake of of that uh, somewhat brutal loss and fight Alexander Rakic here in the main event of Saturday night's fight night. And I don't think that the reasons are a mystery really to anyone. I think if you pay attention to the sport, if you know what kind of competitor Anthony Smith is, we can all infer he wanted to get uh, that demon off his back, so to speak. He wanted to get out there, have a good performance stay in the hunt for the title now that John Jones is probably moving up to heavyweight. And he wanted to get the taste out of his mouth, for lack of a better term, to, to go out there and, and get a, a win against a guy in, in Alexander Rakic, who is an up-and-coming guy, but a guy who was you know, not, not rated quite as highly, at least according to the official UFC rankings, as Anthony Smith. Yeah. What we saw was he did not get that. No. No. And we saw, I think, fairly early on that he was not going to get that. The I wondered because it's really difficult for me. I was watching this fight, trying to separate the question of did he come back too soon from how is he doing in this fight? You know, like it's hard not to read into that when you see like right away he gets caught, kind of just standing at the exact wrong distance with Alexander Rakic and gets his legs beat up pretty good, and then when he kind of collapses out from under one of those leg kicks and Rockets is just thumping on his ribs. And then the bout kind of enters that phase that it's going to stay in for most of the time, which is Anthony Smith trapped on bottom, not able to really move or do much. And Rockets on top of him being very content to just let him stay there. Just as long as he can keep him from getting up and doing much, he seemed okay with that. And that it's just kind of like a, a slow grind to the finish at that point. And I don't know. It's easy to look at somebody's performance and be like, see, this shows like that he, he wasn't ready to come back or like he, he lacks some of the the fire to be able to get back in that fight afterwards. Like he didn't really have an answer when it seemed clear that he needed one. Uh, And I I don't know. I mean, he, you could see him struggling with some of that after the fight where he, he clearly knows like, I got to do something. Like I got to fix something here, but what do we, what do you do? Because the way he framed it at least was, this guy was too big and strong. And he was able to just take me down and hold me there and not, not do a whole lot, but able to just keep me there. He said, like, I couldn't even create any space for myself to try to get anything going from the bottom. And I don't know what to do about that. Like, he, he knows what life is like as a middleweight. And it's 20 pounds lower is a big, big difference. And you heard him talking about it where he was like, that's not just a thing where I can watch my diet and in camp and get that weight down, like to drop to a weight class 20 pounds lower, that is a lifestyle change. And it's like a year round lifestyle change. And I don't know if I'm prepared to make that, or do you take some time off and try to hit the weight room and get yourself bigger and stronger? Um, I don't, either one of those sounds like a tough fix, especially because as we talked about before on this show, once you get to that point where you're a known guy, you fought for a title, People know who you are and they like you and they enjoy seeing you fight. You, they're not going to be a whole lot of easy fights for you at that point. Because the UFC feels like, okay, you, you've gotten to that level. We're paying you for what we see as you being at that level. And every time you go out there, like we can put your name in a main event fight and it'll be 
somewhat realistic. Like this could be a headliner of a UFC fight night event. Sure. And then you go out there, they're not going to want to give you somebody who it seems like it's going to be pretty easy. They're going to give you a bunch of tough fights. And and what do you do if you feel like you've run into kind of a roadblock? Yeah. Anthony Smith, just one and three now in his last four fights, though. One of those losses is the John Jones title fight at UFC 235, which not necessarily one that you can, uh, fault against almost anyone in the sport. He turns around after that and beats Alexander Gustafson by rear naked choke in June of 2019. So I think, you know, it's clear Anthony Smith still has, has skills. He still has, uh, the, a ton of heart. He's still very durable and he could still go out there and beat a lot of guys in this division. I think, you know, when we start parsing whether or not Anthony Smith came back too soon, too soon, or, or, you know, he's still dealing with stuff in his personal life from the, the, highly publicized break-in at his house he's still dealing with, maybe physical fallout from that Glover Tashir fight. One of the things not to lose sight of, I think, is that he was like borderline a three-to-one underdog against Alexander Rockich. So like maybe this was just a fight that he was not going to win. You know, Maybe he just came up against a younger, bigger, stronger, up-and-coming 205-pound fighter and that Alexander Rockich was just a tough matchup for Anthony Smith. Yeah. Although, you know, when I, I – it's hard for me not to think, though, that Anthony Smith himself is not going to look at this fight and how it went and ask himself some questions. I think you saw that at the post-fight interview, as you talked about, where he did everything except call for a 195-pound weight class, right? Yeah. He was like, I'm not one of these guys who, who pines for additional weight classes, but the fact is this guy was just much bigger and much stronger than me, and I feel like I could have beat him, frankly, but he was just like had this physical advantage over me. So uh, – I think that Anthony Smith is, and we know, like everybody in the sport likes Anthony Smith, and we know Anthony Smith a little bit. He seems like a thoughtful, introspective guy. I think he's going to be thinking about this one for a while because he really never got much going in this fight. He landed like one solid punch on the feet, and other than that, Rockets just pretty much controlled the whole thing. Not only with his his uh, low leg kicks, but you know, also frankly, just with his size and strength and, and ability to, as you said, stay on top and. Not get not get caught in a submission, uh, but also I mean like the thing about Rockich's performance there was that it seemed pretty clear early on that he could kind of do what he wants here, yeah, and he did not seem interested in doing too much more than necessary. Which, on one hand, I guess I understand it. You know, like he it, this was a big fight for him, his first UFC main event, fighting a guy who was a former title challenger, and so it was a big win for him. And when you realize like okay. I can win this way, get my show and my win money, move myself forward and move myself forward at a time when the division itself is in a state of flux, having the champion just leave. And it may not take that much to get into a a title contention spot right now. So I can understand a little bit the desire to be like, don't just don't fuck it up. Like once you realize I can just keep doing this and win and not take a whole lot of risks and not take any damage. And then I'm out of here with a victory. To some extent, I get that. I also feel like because of where the division is right now and that it seems kind of wide open for anybody willing to kind of step up and make a case, you can – Rockets came out of that fight being like, I think I, the title's next for me, man. Like I think I deserved it. Like I, I proved I deserve it. And it's like somebody else goes out there and has a more exciting fight than you in like two or three weeks, people will forget all about you. That's the that's the other problem with the division being so wide open at this point. Also, when he got up and celebrated with like, you know, seven or eight seconds left on the clock and afterwards he was like, you know, I feel like I deserve to celebrate. And so like I I wouldn't do it if I felt like I didn't deserve it. And it's like, man, everybody else was watching that and going, this guy's 
sure is feeling good about this fight that kind of bored the hell out of the rest of us. Like there's a little bit of a, maybe that's one where if the crowd was around, you'd, you'd get the sense that there was a disconnect between how the fighter was seeing it and how the fans were perceiving it. Yeah. He was also coming into this fight on the heels of his first loss in about nine years. He lost that split decision to uh, Vulcan Ozdemir back in December of 2019. So that's just another factor uh, maybe at play that, that made Rockic feel like a safe and sane victory here was, was good enough. Uh, I will say this in his favor. He certainly looks the part. He does. He certainly looks like a 28-year-old light heavyweight MMA prospect right down to uh, one full sleeve of tattoos and I believe a tattoo across one collarbone that says ready for war. So you see this guy getting off the bus, you think, oh yeah, Alexander Rockich, light heavyweight contender. That said, like as you said, the performance here, while you know, somewhat suffocating, like uh, pretty lopsided. He got a 30-26 from one of the judges here. Uh, it wasn't one that like made you feel like he's going to like uh, jump over a lily pad and suddenly be in a heavyweight or light heavyweight title fight against, uh, you know, Dominic Reyes or whoever it happens to be. Yeah, but then when you think about what light heavyweight has going on right now, even if you're not having a ton of exciting fights, as long as you're not losing – it may not take long before they just have no other option but to give you a light heavyweight title shot. Like True. I know you've talked before about how uh, when John Jones isn't in the picture, Daniel Cormier long since been out of the picture, you, the light heavyweight division starts to get into a little bit of shut it down territory. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you got some some reason for hope on the horizon. You got some younger fighters that seem like, okay, they may be they may turn into really interesting fighters. Guys like Dominic Reyes, you know, you, you got Rakic, Yuri Prochaska, guys like that. There, there's some stuff there that gives you some reason to hope. But also there are some nights like this where you go, man, what if this is what we're left with when John Jones is gone? I agree with you. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then uh, we can move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad... I don't know if you saw this from the prelims on Saturday night, but with basically one second left on the clock, Zach Cummings lands a head kick flush just right on Alessio DiCirico's jaw, drops him right at the horn, basically. Flattens him out. He's not knocked unconscious, but it is one of those knockdowns where it's clear if he would just step up and just give a little boop on the nose to Alessio DiCirico, that one's going to be over. But it comes right at the the horn to end the third and final round. Now, didn't end up being a heartbreaker because Zach Cummins is already winning on the scorecards there. So he, he wins the unanimous decision, gets the victory anyway. But then I went back and I looked at the, the strike differentials in this fight. Chad, I don't know if this is going to surprise you or anything, but this one really did come down to kind of just like one strike. The the strike totals here, uh, DeChirico landed 53 significant strikes throughout this fight. Cummings landed 54. The last one, that head kick. So are you fucking kidding me? That is about as close to like the one decisive strike in all the possible senses of the word as you're ever going to get, especially for a fight that ends in unanimous decision. And I think that we should adopt it as an official rule because there are some questions about Chirico gets dropped there, uh, but the horn has already sounded. Basically, 
You, you can't say he's knocked out because he's still awake and blinking. But then when he gets up to go to his corner, a couple little stumbles. Like where you're trying to tell the cops that you're fine, like you don't deserve to be taken in for public intoxication. You try to get up and walk away and it doesn't go that smoothly. That's basically what he did get into his corner. But I hereby move that an official rule be added to MMA for this specific circumstance. If you can get up and make it back over in the general direction of your corner in three stumbles or fewer, we go to the scorecards. It was the right decision not to stop it. The three stumbles rule. The three stumbles rule. Three stumbles or fewer. So you can have the third one. Okay. But if you go to four, then maybe we got to do something else. Then you're done. Ben, what the fuck is UFC Ultimate Sound? I'm sorry? UFC Ultimate Sound. They were okay. advertising this on the broadcast. Did you see what this is? No. No, I did not see what this is. This appears to be an application that I can put on my phone. Okay. Just in case I want to listen to... Mixes inspired by UFC fighters and and events, exclusive mixes, videos, and more. Stream music anytime, anywhere. UFC Ultimate Sound. Okay. Ben, are, ben, are you fucking kidding me? I don't know if I am fucking kidding you or not. I'm not. You think I'm, you think I'm gonna put happening. an app? You think I'm gonna put an app on my phone? UFC Ultimate Sound, so I can listen to songs. Can, there's not an app that I got on my phone where I can listen to music. Is that what the UFC thinks? Or they just but they, are they these really, ones are inspired by the UFC fights. No, I'm looking at I'm looking at it right now over on uh, UFC.com. There appear to be mixes called Chill, okay, Dig Deep, Ultimate Beat, all right, the Octagon, okay, Get, get Going. What else is here? Room Prep. You fucking kidding me, man? Like you think I'm going to put an app on my phone? So I can listen to UFC-inspired mixes wherever I am, wherever I happen to be in the world. All I want to know, yes or no, no, does every single one of these mixes contain the dubstep Hotel California remix that they play at every single event? No, you got to go live for that. Okay. Maybe there's a live event experience mix that I'm just not seeing on the uh, on the site here. Everybody's hands go up and they stay there and they stay there. It's almost like... There. The UFC is looking around at the marketplace and thinking, well, let's see here. We got uh, Fight Island branded beach towels. Mm-hmm. Yep. Check. We got the UFC logo hot dog brander. Check. What don't we have that people could give us their money for? I Music I, app? Music app. You put a music app on your phone. Like they're like Spotify and Apple and fucking Pandora don't exist. Just – UFC Ultimate Sound. It's not as if the UFC is doing that, looking around to see what else you could give them your money for. That is exactly what they're doing. Right. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? I'm not putting UFC Ultimate Sound on my phone. Or or am I? Maybe spice up those Peloton workouts? (laughs) Take it for a test drive? Yeah. Just see. Get deep into uh, room prep or whatever the fuck this mix (laughs) is called? Yeah, I don't know what that is. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round number two. So, Chad, our guy, Robert Glenn Lawler. He is 38 years old. 
And on Saturday night, he lost his fourth straight fight in the UFC. A unanimous decision to Neil Magny, one where Neil Magny, to his credit, never really let Robbie Lawler get into any of the Robbie Lawler stuff. And Neil Magny fought a very smart and technically proficient fight, did exactly what he needed to do. And if you go back and you look at the stats and the strike totals and everything, absolutely routed Robbie Lawler in every meaningful metric in this fight. More importantly, though, it looked like Robbie Lawler just just couldn't find the next gear. And normally we've seen fights where Robbie Lawler gets in there and he gets frustrated against somebody who is not letting him do his stuff, but he's always dangerous. He always remains He retains that capacity to just at any one point, just fling a punch out there that completely changes your night and turns everything around. And yet this one, I was watching the clip afterwards of uh, between the second and the third round where he's there in his corner and Henry Hooft is imploring him. Like you're waiting, you know, you're, 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 you're hesitating. You got to just go out there and we're down. You got to knock this guy out and you're fighting. Like it's a sparring session. Like we're in training we're not training. Like you, you got to get violent. You got to get out there and you got to have some urgency and he just couldn't do it. And that's where it started to look like, wait a minute. Is this, is this what the end starts to look like for Robbie Lawler? which depressed the hell out of me. Well, I think you got to credit Neil Magny for starters. You do. Uh, because Magny is, can be a frustrating guy to fight, I think. Not that I've done it, but from watching, it seems like he is a frustrating guy to fight. And f- there were about 10 or 15 seconds at the beginning of round number three here where a Robbie Lawler fight broke out. Yeah. But that was it. Aside from that, I think Neil Magny kind of shut him down. It seemed like a somewhat frustrating experience for Robbie Lawler. Uh, Obviously, Magny is able to uh, put him in positions where Neil Magny felt like he could be successful, basically draped all over him on the ground, up against the fence. Every time Robbie Lawler got anywhere near a distance where he could throw punches, you, you saw Magny do a good job closing the distance, getting the clinch, getting him down basically doing Neil Magny things all over the cage for 15 minutes. We talked at the beginning of the show how the main event of this one was not one where we felt like we needed 10 more minutes, and I would add the co-main event to that conversation as well. I wasn't sitting at home thinking, man, if Robbie Lawler just had two more starts, right? If there was a fourth and fifth round for him to come out of his corner, he would probably win this. This was the Neil Magny show from start to finish. And I think you're right on one hand that if you start to think, does Neil Magny have this result if he goes out there and fights – the Robbie Lawler uh, circa, you know, UFC championship days, uh, you know, not, not too many years ago, 2014, 2015. Does he get the same result? I think the answer is maybe no. You are, in fact, out there fighting a 38-year-old Robbie Lawler. But at the same time, I feel like Neil Magny is pretty good. And I feel like this is just kind of a bad stylistic matchup for Robbie Lawler. And one that, frankly, while I was watching it, I was like, why would you send Robbie Lawler out to have this fight? Why, like, why would you even give 38-year-old Robbie Lawler this fight? I know that we are kind of mix and match, catches catch can matchmaking here amid the pandemic era where everyone is taking short notice fights and just going out there and fighting whoever. But it's not like Robbie Lawler is the champion anymore. It's not like he needs to take on all comers why why do we even put Robbie Lawler in a fight against a guy who is who we all know is going to do this exact thing to him? And that is to take nothing away from Neil Magny, who is a hell of a fighter who I legitimately enjoy watching a lot. But like why send Robbie Lawler out for this duty, man? Like this 
this isn't a Robbie Lawler fight, and it was never going to be a Robbie Lawler fight, really. Yeah, but I mean, like for one thing, one problem with being Robbie Lawler at this point is that you fought damn near everybody just by virtue of being around as long as you have. And uh, you're also right that when we're looking for matchups that we can make during pandemic UFC and uh, a fight cart, like a fight night event at the apex, you're not choosing from the full deck of available fighters. Like you gotta, gotta take what you can get. I think at some point, but you're right. I mean, you mentioned that part where for a few seconds in the third round, he did start to get going. You're like, okay, maybe Robbie Lawler is going to get some, some momentum here. And Neil Magny, to his credit, was like, okay, we want to do this. I can do this. Like, I, I, I'm I, totally comfortable doing this too. And would stand there at a range where Robbie Lawler couldn't reach him and started lighting him up with punches. And by the end, Robbie Lawler's leaking blood from his face. And you're going like, yeah, yeah I mean, that, that guy can't say he wasn't in a fight. Like, Neil Magny, he did all the Neil Magny stuff to him. But then you could hear his corner being like, okay, if he wants to fight, let's fight. And he's like, all right, yeah, like, let's, let's stand here and bang a little bit too. And I'll show you that you don't want that either. And to me, the thing that made it seem... Like, okay, maybe this is how Robbie Lawler's career starts to wind down was just that the the frustration in the place of an urgent hostility, which is what we've seen from him in past fights before, like that it just seemed like he was getting kind of fed up and getting mad without that getting him to a place where he was really capable of doing anything about it. Like just kind of hoping that the guy will stand there and and let you hit him in the face. And I, I mean... Maybe it makes sense because Robbie Lawler has been at this for damn near two decades at this point and has been through it all, been through a whole bunch of stuff, been through some real wars that, you know, we focus on like fights like the the Rory McDonald fight where we're like, man, maybe Rory McDonald was never the same after that. You know, maybe Robbie Lawler wasn't either. Like th- those fights are going to take some stuff out of both guys. But it made me wonder what what does the future look like for Robbie Lawler at this point? Yeah. If only Robbie Lawler would ever tell us. But – it doesn't seem like he's the kind of dude that's going to do that. Although I did see, like previous to this fight, he said he he's going to be out there competing in something for the rest of his life, even if it doesn't happen to be professional prize fighting. He's he's got to scratch that competitive itch. Uh, and I'll tell you, you know, for Robbie Lawler, he still looked like a guy that could land one and end yeah. it at any time. Like he's thrown out head kicks, he's he's thrown out uh, hard shots, and there was one that landed that that Neil Magny took and was like, okay, I guess I'm going to pull guard, which. Uh, Maybe you hate to see it, but at the same time, that's that's a smart thing for Neil Magny to do. Once we got back on the ground there, even though he was on the bottom, like the the point where Robbie Lawler could threaten him was over, and you know he's able to to ride out the unanimous decision win. Uh, and frankly, if if it turned out that we are kind of on the downside of the Robbie Lawler career, if we're getting near the bottom of the hill, and we are about to to enter the the end days. Doesn't it seem like we timed it about right? Like this is about when it should happen. Like I don't know that that anybody needs to see Robbie Lawler out there at 40, 45 years old still trying to have those Rory McDonald style fights. Uh, and who knows if he will be or will not be. But you know, if it, it might be the sort of like you know what we talk about sometimes on this podcast. What's the worst thing that could happen to a guy? If Robbie Lawler is still out there knocking people out at thirty eight, thirty nine years old, and he's thinking, "Hey, man, I could do this for another decade." That might not be that might not be for the best. Yeah. Maybe maybe if we get a slow, somewhat painless exit from the sport that allows Robbie Lawler to go do something else, whatever he wants to do. Uh I hear professional cornhole is uh That did look fun. When I saw Jorge Masvidal do that, that looked super yeah. fun. Yeah. 
So like who who knows what he'll do? But 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 it's you're right. You look at 38 year old Robbie Lawler and you think maybe this is maybe we're getting towards the uh, toward the end stage here. Yeah. And what about for Magny though? Neil Magny, a guy who also has been in the game seemingly forever, like a, a person who had he's just 33 years old. He's won three in a row now. Uh, five of his last six, he's got the loss to Santiago Ponzinibbio back in 2018. But he he just perennially seems like the kind of guy who is circling around contendership in uh, you know whatever division he happens to supply his trade in. But at the same time, like. I don't know if I envision like a a a long title reign or anything like that in the future of Neil Magny. He just seems like a guy who is something of a nightmare to fight. Yeah, and it seems like the people who have maybe a little bit of a choice in who they fight are probably not going to want to fight him for those reasons. Yeah. Because even if you beat that guy, your chances of looking good aren't that great. But he also like he he has that unfortunate thing of he'll string together three or four wins in a row and then lose one every once in a while. And it's like if you are that guy, the only way you're going to really get those next level fights is to force the hand by just beating everybody else that there is to beat. And if you're if you're not doing it with like charisma or having a few huge fan following, then you need to do it by just the sheer number of wins to where the UFC finally goes, well, fuck it, I guess I guess we got no choice. And he, he hasn't quite been able to do that. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, if I invented a time machine... Okay, this is off to a great start. Yeah. And, and I put you on a mission to travel back in time to December 31st, 2010. And your mission was to catch Alistair Overeem as he was leaving Saitama Super Arena on the heels of knocking out Todd Duffy in 19 seconds at, at Dynamite 2010. And you were to tell him Alistair, big guy, Uberim. About 10 years from now, you're going to have a fight in an empty arena in Las Vegas, an arena built by the UFC and owned by the UFC. And in that fight, from the outside looking in, it's sure going to look like you are being put in there as fodder for 29-year-old Brazilian Augusto Sakai, who happens to be on a five, six fight win streak. What do you think Overeem says? Do you think he says, no, man, that's, I can't imagine that. Like hand me another horse meat burger. Like I'm on top of the world and surely I will find a way to gracefully exit from this sport. Or do you think that salty old MMA combat sports veteran, Alistair Overeem looks you in the eye and says, yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) Well, I don't, I mean, I think, the 2010 version of Overeem with his his trap muscles coming out of his damn ears, he'd probably want to correct you on a fact or two if you try to tell him that that's how things are going to play out for him. Because, you know, I was in, in fact in the building and talked to him on uh, December 31st, 2009, one year before your scenario, 
and asked him about what his future held. And he was like, well, I'm going to win the K1 championship and then I'm going to fight Fedor. And I was like, are you saying that as like, that's just like what you would like to have happen? Or do you have like actual concrete plans that can make this happen? And he was like, K1 championship, then Fedor. And I was like, okay, I guess that answers that. So I think that's the kind of answer you would probably get if you went back and you told him. Because in order for anybody to envision not only where they personally would be right now, but just the weird circumstances under which any of us would be there, a little bit difficult for anybody to wrap their brains around prior to this. The thing that amazes me about Overeem is that it seems like we keep seeing these points where we're like, all right, that's it. Like, we're kind of done here. We've seen what we need to see. We... He's not going to be the even at heavyweight, even at even in the division where you know being a forty year old heavyweight makes you seem like hey you could still have five good years left in this. Still, it seems like we what we've seen have from Overeem lately have told us a story, and yet he never really seems that bothered by any of it, man. Like he just seems like he legitimately seems like he must fucking love this. Like he must just love the the training and the showing up to fight and all that stuff. Because you see those guys where they're like, hey, I'm doing it for a paycheck and that's just all I'm in it here for. And then they get to the point where they start to get a little older and it's a little less fun. And the injuries start mounting up and everything. And the paychecks aren't so great anymore. And that's when they start losing their enthusiasm for a little bit. And that really hasn't happened to Overeem. It seems like Overeem is going to fight till he's fucking 70 just because he genuinely seems to like what he does this just that much and the ups and the downs. Like he never really seems like he gets too high or too down low. Anyway, I mean, you look at just, just like the last couple fights for him where he goes out there against Jairzinho Rosenstrike is mostly winning the fight and then gets his whole shit broke at the very end. It's his, his lips split open. And it's like two weeks later, we see pictures of him. Plastic surgeon fixed it. He's fine. He's not worried about it. He's ready to go. And he shows up there against Walt Harris and beats him after, you know, we spent the whole week, uh, telling the, the the heartbreaking story of what's going on in Walt Harris's family after that. And it's like Overeem could conceivably do that. Lose one, win one, lose one, win one in the heavy, UFC's heavyweight division for as long as you let him. Yeah. And to his credit, like he has uh, transformed himself into a different kind of fighter. Many really. times. Like, in fact. Yeah. And not, and not necessarily one that I think would have been all that uh, easy to imagine. If all we had to go on was 2010 Uberim, like he's he's definitely made himself into the sort of consummate crafty veteran, uh, where he's out there, you know, he uh, going through the the early adversity against Walt Harris and then coming back and finding a way to do it. I guess maybe more than anything else, maybe I'm just telling on myself, but it astounds me that we have reached a point where Alistair Overeem just seems like. Any any one of a number of dudes in the heavyweight division, because like if you think back to those days when he was he was beating Brock Lesnar and he's beating Todd Duffy and and like he was spending a conspicuously large amount of time overseas doing stuff like he just seemed like like a such a force of nature like such an unbelievable like uncontrollable uh, a powerhouse that like fast forward ten years and here he is. You know, like Robert Lawler, probably like getting down toward the end of his career, but at the same time, like still wily, still capable, can go out there and win fights. But at the same time, and especially I feel like it's apparent in this matchup against Sakai, like just seems like another UFC heavyweight. 
that's in the deck that we can drop the Alistair Overeem card if we need to. It's astonishing to me that we've reached that point if I allow myself to reflect on it. I mean, it's astonishing in part at least because you would have expected Alistair Overeem to just have fallen off way harder by now. Like the the thing that makes it surprising to me that like Alistair Overeem can end up being like just another fighter is that he can still show up and beat a whole bunch of the heavyweights you got and a whole bunch of the heavyweights you got who you were hoping can turn into something. Like he can still just kind of do that a couple nights a year. Normally you'd think a guy like that, he he'd hit some peak. And then when the younger generation starts to catch up to him, he just gets one loss after another and we don't see him anymore. And pretty soon it's whatever happened to Alistair Overeem. And I don't know if it's just that the heavyweight division operates differently than the other weight classes or just like, I think as you say, he has like, we, we like to talk about people being like crafty veterans of the fight game or something, but he really is like, he, he has made these adjustments as like his physical tools have diminished a little bit. He's made the right mental adjustments that he's still a really tough guy to fight. And you don't see people successfully do that very often. Right. Especially not in that weight class. Uh, now, we talked earlier in the show about the predicament that Bellator is in, in that in this modern MMA age, maybe it's hard to even get people to pay attention long enough to make stars. In Augusto Sakai, do we see the flip side of that? That you got a guy who had six fights in Bellator, who was reasonably successful over there, uh, you know, is, is three years removed now from his last Bellator fight, washes up in the Dana White Contender Series, and then gets on a roll and has now won four fights in a row in the UFC and the UFC can, can put him up in a fight against Alistair Overeem. That seems like at least from the outside looking in that it's a fight to, to make Augusto Sakai known that like, if he wins this, it'll be the, you know, the signature win of this run for him and maybe vault him to another level in that heavyweight division. And that the UFC can kind of just sort of be like, we created this guy. Like yeah, yeah. Augusto Sakai is a UFC star. He's a UFC fighter. And that, you know, most people will probably not even remember that he spent several years over there getting wins in Bellator. Well, one good thing is that you don't have to worry that people saw this guy lose like a split decision to Czech Congo because even if they did start watching it, they definitely didn't finish watching it. Like they didn't make it to the end of that fight. So there you go. Maybe you tell yourself like that's that is the flip side that he could have this whole other career somewhere else. And yet if you're the UFC, you can just put together the promo packages and pretend like it didn't happen. Yeah. All the guys they've got over there are guys we cut. There you go. That's how you talk about the light heavyweight division. Yep. All right. Let's do uh, just saying stuff, Ben, and then uh, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, this weekend I was working on a story that should run on the athletics sometime this week. One of these uh, boxing history stories about the time that a Butte miner named Jack Monroe fought the heavyweight champion of the world, James J. Jeffries, in a four-round exhibition bout, stayed all four rounds, and collected his $250 fee, which was a big enough fee. But afterward, James J. Jeffries asked for a quote from the newspaper about how this came to happen. Uh, The referee had even awarded the decision to Jack Monroe, uh, which James J. Jeffries was not happy about. He was an undefeated heavyweight champion at the time. The decision doesn't really matter because it was an exhibition bout, but still he replied... This is the first decision against me in my whole pugilistic career. Had the bout gone one round more, I would without a doubt have knocked Monroe out. The altitude affected me greatly, and I was afraid of overexertion. So, Chad, I guess I'm just saying that fight was in 1902. 
December of 1902. And I would have knocked him out if I'd had a little more time. And it was the altitude that got me. Otherwise, it would have been a way easier fight. I guess I'm just saying the fight game always been the fight game. There's nothing new in the fight game. It just changes shape a little bit. I'm just saying. Would have won if he hadn't lost. Would have won if he hadn't lost. Although they had a rematch a couple of years later and uh, maybe, maybe he's right. <laughs> Let's say that. <laughs> uh, ben, did you see what your guy Vanderlei Silva was up to uh, over the weekend? I heard he got on the social medias. He got on the social medias and he, I believe this was on Instagram, posted a a fight poster for an event called Fight Club After Dark. Okay. Promising start. To, to scheduled for uh, November 21st, uh, an experience, experience live MMA like never before under the stars on the Mike Tyson Ranch okay. at uh, Desert Hot Springs. Including such fights, now listen to this, Ben. Including such fights as Vitor Belfort versus Vanderlei Silva, hmm. Tito Ortiz versus Rashad Evans, and Fabricio Verdum versus Fedor Emelianenko. Okay, so so basically, none of these other people know that they are involved in this. Tweeted, I guess, didn't tweet it, but Instagrammed and deleted. Did your guy Vanderlei Silva? I guess I'm just saying now that I've seen it, I can't forget it. Like, you want me to go back to a world where Vanderlei Silva didn't tease this event at Mike Tyson's ranch? Under the stars? Vitor Belfort under the stars, and somehow Fedor Emelianenko and Fabricio Verdum are going to show up and fight each other? I'm just saying, like, now that my mind has been open to the idea, it's not like I can go back to normal life, right? Am I going to go make myself a tuna sandwich and just pretend like everything's fine? No! No, Ben! I've had this vision presented in front of me. Now I'm supposed to pretend like it doesn't exist? And the vision is happening under the stars at Mike Tyson's ranch, a.k.a. basically you're talking about putting on this fight in a cow pasture. Yeah, uh, yes. It's the event we never know we needed, but now we can't go back. I point back to my just saying stuff that the fight game has always been the fight game. When I get you that time machine Uh and you go back in time to 2010 – I want you to do whatever you can to make this event come off. Okay. Start laying the groundwork yeah. at that time. Find Fedor and be like, hey, man, let me tell you about this ranch. Just whatever you can do to make this a reality. It feels like some uh, some complicated butterfly wings are going to have to flap in order for me to make that happen. But I'll see what I can do. Or I mean, You're going to have nothing but time because when, once we send you back, we're not, we're not bringing you back to the present. Okay. That's, the, that's the downside. Right. Well, I'll just assume I that mean, it upside, works then. You get to live the 2010s all over again. You know what? Right now, that doesn't sound bad. That sounds pretty damn good. You got a a 10-year extension lease on life. There you go. I'll take it. Anyway, that is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, We'll be on the Patreon the rest of the week. Fun stuff over there on Wednesday. Check us out for the live chat as well as the next installment of our Rewatchman series where we're watching the HBO limited series Watchmen and talking about it. It's a lot of fun. We think you'll like it. And then of course on Friday, we'll be back for the power hour. The address, if you want to get down with all that is patreon.com slash co-main event. It's a lot of fun. The people seem to enjoy it. As for right now though, we are done. We are through. We are out. 
One thing I, I think I'm learning though from this Vanderlei Silva thing is that if you're gonna do like an outdoor event and you don't want it to sound kind of like janky, like okay, we're just doing this out in the field at Mike Tyson's place, throw in under the stars. Yeah, it's got you know? a classy ring to it. It's yeah, got a real classy feel to it. Yeah, like no, you know, like no, I do not live in an encampment down under the bridge down by the river. River, I live under the stars. That's right. Living my life under yeah. the stars. If you get the chance, have you seen the Vitor Belfort response video? Where basically he's like, There's we've been video? waiting for you to sign. Yes, the Instagram video. Belfort is like, we've been waiting for you to sign the contract in 1FC. Like, let's make the deal. Let's go fight over there. Because uh, Vitor Belfort has some special stuff happening with his personal look right now. Okay. And I invite you to go find it and check it out. Oh, wow. Well, now I'm excited. And, and frankly terrified. Yeah. Pink t-shirt, curly hair, large and in charge. That's all I'll say. Okay. Well, you're painting a picture. You should go check it out.